The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you, if you would, to turn your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 8. I don't know about you, but this journey through Luke's Gospel has been a great joy for me. Just this time each and every week to to look at our Lord Jesus Christ and to contemplate his life and his ministry has been just such a blessing to my own heart. I hope that the journey has been the same for you. Luke has been, has been introducing us to people that Jesus encountered in his life and ministry. Luke, like every gospel writer, is is choosing which things that he saw and heard to record in his gospel. The, the, the Apostle John wrote in, in his gospel, uh, you know, a, a statement that says so much. He says basically that there's no way for us to write down everything Jesus said and did. If we did that, it would be volume after volume after volume. So each of the gospel writers understands that and is including certain things that are, are sort of germane to the point they're trying to make about Christ, in particular to the audience to whom they're writing. And James, excuse me, not James, but Luke, is writing to a, a largely Gentile audience, and he has carefully selected which events to include in his gospel. And so as we're working our way through Luke's gospel, you and I should always be asking the question, why does Luke include this thing rather than something else? Why does... Luke wants us to know about this person and their encounter with Christ rather than someone else. And I found myself asking that this week as we come to the end of Luke chapter 8 and sort of wrap up this chapter and, and sort of uh, shift gears into a, a sort of a new section of Luke beginning in verse 9. There are two more people that Luke wants us to meet before we move on to other things. Two more people that he wants to introduce to us. Two more people who encounter Jesus. And he wants us to pause and, and know something about these encounters. And these two people could not have been more different from one another. As we work our way through the text, you're going to find that there's one individual who is a man. The other is a woman. Maybe those distinctions aren't as significant in our culture as they were in the first century, maybe isn't the right word. Those distinctions were certainly not as distinct now as they were in the first century, at least as it pertains to social identity and social interaction. One is gonna be a man, one is gonna be a woman. One is rich, the other is broke. One is, is respected and admired by peers and by society in general. The other is an individual who's rejected and shunned and on the margins of society. One is a, a very public figure. One, the other, sort of lives in the shadows. One is a, a beloved leader. The other is a, a, an, an invisible nobody. One if you were to look at his life, you would say that this is a person who's outwardly righteous. The other one, if you lived in that culture, you would only know one word associated with her. It would be the word unclean. These two people could not have been any more different from one another in just about every aspect of their existence. But on this particular day, they both meet Jesus Christ. And both of their lives are changed forever because of the encounter. And we're going to be asking the question, and I hope you'll be thinking about this as we work our way through. These people who are so different, what is it that they have in common? What is the thread that ties them together that Luke would want us to know about them both? We begin in verse 40 of Luke chapter 8, and Jesus excuse me, Luke sort of gives us the context and introduces us to the first person. He says this, now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him, and there came a man named Jairus, who was a ruler of the synagogue. 
falling at Jesus' feet, he implored him to come to his house. For he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. As Jesus went, the people pressed around him. Now, when we left off last week, we, we left off with Jesus and his disciples on the other shore, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. They had had quite a journey to get to that side of the shore. They had left somewhere near Capernaum on the sort of uh, the, the, the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee, and they had gotten in a boat because, specifically because, there was a crowd that had been following and a crowd that had been building and a crowd that had been gathering and pressing in with constant unending demands. And Jesus says to his disciples, we need to get in the boat, we need to cross over to the other side. And we find out pretty quickly from Luke's account that at least one of the purposes for that movement of the team was that Jesus was physically exhausted. He was absolutely wiped out from serving people nonstop and meeting their needs. They get in the boat and he immediately falls dead asleep. His body needed rest. And and you recall the story, they, they head out onto the sea to cross to the other side and a storm uh, blows in and, and the disciples think they're gonna die and, and chaos breaks loose and Jesus awakens and, and he calms the storm and does this incredible miracle where he speaks and just simply tells the storm to settle down and the storm stops in its tracks and the disciples are amazed and they're wondering who in the world he is. They, they know him but they don't know him. Immediately when they land on the other side of the shore, likely still dripping wet, they're met by what we saw last week, this screaming naked uh, maniac who is completely demonized by a legion of demons, racing toward them from the cemetery, screaming at them all the way. And Jesus has this remarkable encounter where he, he casts this legion of demons out of them, this man, and, and into the swine who then hurl themselves into the lake and drown. And that event sort of concluded with a really startling ending where all the people of the town come out and they come to see this thing that's happened and this maniac who's now sane and in his right mind and clothed and sitting at Jesus' feet and their conclusion is that they're terrified and they say to Jesus, will you please just go away, just leave. To which he does not object. He and his disciples get back in their boat and they sail back across the Sea of Galilee and go back somewhere near Capernaum, likely, is where they come back ashore. And we find immediately here that the crowd that they tried to escape from earlier hasn't gone anywhere. The crowd is still right there by the shore waiting for them to come back. Likely, has been building all of this time. More people coming and more people gathering. And so when Jesus and his disciples get back to that side, the crowd is still there and they're waiting for his return. They're anxiously awaiting his return. And there's, there's this remarkable contrast between the two crowds. One crowd on one side sees the remarkable things that Jesus does and says, will you please leave and go away? And the other crowd literally cannot get enough of him. In this crowd that Jesus returns to, this mixture, this odd mixture of people. In the mix are some, some followers who, who truly are interested in Jesus and are truly wondering who he is and are truly amazed by what he's doing and what he's saying. And they're, they're seeking to know him and seeking to know more. But they're not the majority of the crowd. The majority of the crowd are people who have sort of come and gathered uh, because they're attracted by the novelty of what he's doing. They're hearing about his miracles and they're hearing about the things that he's done and they're, they're, they're attracted because they wanna see more of it. They wanna see the show, if you will. Mixed in with that are a whole slew of, of sick and desperate individuals who, people who have heard that Jesus has healed other people and so they've come wanting the same thing for themselves and they are, they're, they're desperately clamoring to get in front of Jesus with some hope that they might get to him and that they might be the next in line to be healed by him. And then also in the mix are religious leaders, antagonists, people who are not impressed at all by Jesus, people who hate him and are even now beginning to plot his death because he's a threat to their power and a threat to their income stream and they want him out of the way. 
And so all of this is a mismatch, sort of a mishmash of people that are just clamoring for his attention. And when he hits the shore, everybody wants a piece of him. Everybody is trying to get to Jesus. And, and, and they're, they're pressing in, they're trying to get to him. And yet, it's remarkable to me that Jesus continues to remain accessible to the crowd. I mean, this is the bulk of his ministry, and it's a, it's a very distinct contrast to the Jewish religious leaders of the day. The religious leaders within Judaism were, were, were renowned for cloistering themselves away from the crowds in the synagogues. They hated the crowds. They didn't want anything to do with the clamoring crowds of people. They avoided them at all costs. They viewed the crowds, particularly the sick among the crowds, as defiled and beneath them, and they didn't want anything to do with such people. But Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't cloister himself away. He didn't hide from people. He didn't hide from the crowds. He didn't hide inside the walls of a synagogue. He conducted his ministry out in public, right where the people were who needed him the most. And he was right there among them. He wasn't perturbed by them. He wasn't embarrassed by them. He wasn't ashamed of them. They were not beneath him. They were, in fact, his target audience. And so here he is. And it's hard for us to underestimate the size of this crowd. Uh, it's, it, it really is, because I think our, our imagination sort of thinks of this small crowd, but this was a massive group of people that was, that was likely rather chaotic, with people pressing and pushing and doing whatever they can to get toward him. There's sick and desperate people everywhere, pushing and shoving and shouting. And they're literally making it very difficult for Jesus to even move about. And Luke tells us in the midst of that, of that crowd is a very unexpected individual. A man by the name of Jairus. Very unexpected man in that crowd. He was a very well-known public figure from a nearby town. He is described here in the ESV translation as a ruler of the synagogue. He was a lay elder who was a layman who was responsible for the administration of everything that took place in the synagogue. He was responsible for, for planning and conducting worship. He was functioned sort of as a building administrator for the synagogue. He, he was responsible for selecting who would teach in the synagogue week to week. He was sort of a, a community affairs coordinator as well for the synagogue. He was the leader of the local synagogue. And if you knew anything about Jewish life, all of Jewish life in the first century revolved around what location and what place. Well, the synagogue, that was everything to them. And this man was the key figure in the local synagogue. Everybody would have known this man. He was a very important individual in society. Very well respected. Well known for his godliness. And men in his sort of position in life were wealthy individuals as well. But this particular man... This particular Jewish ruler has a problem. And all of his wealth can't do a thing to help him. And we're introduced to that problem immediately. We're told that he has a 12-year-old daughter, his only daughter, and she is gravely ill at the point of death. We're not told what's killing her. We're not told what the problem is, but there's something that has afflicted this little girl, and it is serious, and it's severe. And like any father, this, this man has likely exhausted every means at his disposal in the culture to try to help his precious little girl. Like, what father would not do that, right? What father would not go to the ends of the earth and spend his last penny to help his dying child? No doubt that's the position that Jairus is in. He's absolutely desperate. He's run out of options. There's nowhere else to turn. There's nothing else available to do. He's tried everything, and she continues to decline. Is there any, just as an aside, is there any worse pain that you can imagine as a parent than watching your child suffer and die and knowing that there's absolutely nothing, that you're just completely powerless to do anything about it. 
That is the condition of this man. All of his respect, all of his position, all of his power, all of his wealth, none of it could do anything. He couldn't leverage any of those things to do one thing to help his little girl who's desperate and dying. And so he comes and he gets into this mob of people with whom he would normally not associate. And he waits by the seashore for Jesus to show up. And when he finds him, we're told that he assumes his position of humility. He falls at Jesus' feet. He doesn't demand anything from Jesus. He doesn't leverage his position. He doesn't exalt his own importance. He knows the opposition that's growing toward Jesus among the Jewish religious leaders. And immediately he assumes a position in front of Jesus that communicates that he is not one who's a part of that. He recognizes that Jesus has power and that power is from God and he knows he has no other option and so he throws all of his pride to the wind, he throws all of his position to the wind, he doesn't care what anybody else thinks, he just wants his daughter to live. So he falls before Jesus. Seeing uh, Jairus desperation, seeing his humility, observing his grief, Jesus has his response. We're told by Luke that he immediately heads off in the direction. He goes. He goes. He's, he's requested to come with Jairus to his home to help his daughter, and Jesus is motivated to, to grant the request. And so he starts sort of pushing his way through the crowd, this, this enormous crowd. He's, he's trying to make his way through in order to get in the direction of Jairus' house to help this little girl. And as we're moving through the text, it's like Luke sort of moves the camera from Jairus to another individual and then back to Jairus. This whole thing flows sort of in three acts. And what happens here is as Jesus is making his way toward Jairus' house, there is an unexpected interruption that takes place. The plan gets sidetracked because there's another desperate individual in this same crowd. And Luke introduces us to her in verse 43. He says, now there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment, and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. And Jesus said, who is it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the, the crowds surround you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling, falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. Jesus was getting ready to perform a miracle at Jairus' house, but there was another miracle that needed to take place first. And it is an unexpected, surprising, and incredible miracle. And Jesus' response to this woman and her condition is remarkable. And it tells us an awful lot about the character and the nature of Christ. We don't know hardly anything about this lady. We're told no details about her life. We're told nothing about where she came from. All we know is that she has an awful condition and she's had it for a very long time. 12 years to be exact. The exact length of time Jairus' daughter has been alive, this woman has been bleeding. Some sort of a gynecological problem, some sort of likely uh, hemorrhaging from um, uterine. We don't know exactly what it was, but it had to have been awful. It had to have been awful. Bleeding consistently for 12 years. Not 12 hours, not 12 days, not 12 months. 12 years. No relief. Not one day of relief in 12 years. Can you imagine the pain? Can you imagine the exhaustion from loss of blood? 
can you imagine the humiliation and the embarrassment this woman had lived with for all these years? How difficult it must have been for her to do anything. Even the, the basic things necessary for life, how does she conduct those things in this kind of a culture with this kind of a problem? Mark shed some light on this incident with a little additional detail. In Mark 5, 26, he says the woman had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Now Luke tells us that she had exhausted her income on doctors, but Mark tells us an additional bit of information. He indicates not only did she spend all of her money on doctors, but the indication is that the doctors had put her through all kinds of hell and taken advantage of her. Incidentally, Luke being a doctor doesn't mention such things. But this woman has tried everything, every option available. She's gone to every doctor that she can reach. She's tried every treatment that's available and nothing has helped her, not one thing. And in case you're wondering what kind of a treatment one might find in the first century for such an affliction, you could look to the Jewish Talmud and here's what it says to do for someone with this kind of a problem. It says, take the gum of the Alexandria, the weight of a small silver co coin, of allium the same, of crocus the same. Let them be bruised together and given in wine to the woman that has an issue of blood. If this does not benefit, take, take of Persian onions, three pints, boil them in wine and give her to drink, and say, arise from thy flux. Like abracadabra, hocus pocus. If this does not cure her, set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come up behind her and frighten her and say, arise from thy flux. Now we laugh at this, right? Because we live in the year 2022 and it sounds incredibly ridiculous. But this was the cutting edge of modern medicine in the first century. And you can imagine this poor woman doing these things because she thinks that's her only choice to get help. Can't you just see this woman standing in the middle of a road or two ways part holding a glass of wine in her hand, trying to hide her humiliation while somebody sneaks up behind her? Says, away thy flux, you know? What in the world? Holding out hope beyond hope that maybe that would help. She's done all these things. She's tried everything conventional and non-conventional. And she's found no help. She still bleeds. Can you imagine sort of that cycle of, of hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment, hope and disappointment that she's been running for 12 years? And all, all of this has gotten her is an empty bank account. She's broke. And that's not the only problem. It's not just the physical affliction. See, this particular kind of physical affliction came with a, a social and religious problem as well. There was a social and a religious effect of this whole thing because this kind of a particular affliction rendered a woman unclean. You could go to Leviticus chapter 15 and verse 19, and here's what Levitical law says. When a woman has a discharge and the discharge in her body is blood, she shall be in her menstrual impurity for seven days. Whoever touches her shall be unclean until the evening. And then if you jump down to verse 25 in Leviticus 15, it says this. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, not at the time of her menstrual impurity, or if she has a discharge beyond the time of her impurity, all the days of the discharge, she, call, she shall continue in what? Uncleanness. As in the days of her impurity, she shall be unclean. This woman has been unclean for how long? For 12 years. For 12 years. And you and I hear the word unclean, you don't know what it means because we don't run around calling people unclean. We don't stick that label on people and then have social implications of that. But in the first century, that had tremendous social implications. If you were unclean, you couldn't enter the synagogue. If you were unclean, you couldn't participate in public worship. 
If you were unclean, you could not physically touch anybody, ever. Because anybody that touched you or that you touched, they then became unclean. So for 12 years, this woman had received zero human touch. Zero. Nobody would have wanted anything to do with her. She would have been completely shunned. Stop for a minute and think about what an important role touch plays in your life socially and in your relationships. How often you touch somebody. And imagine a life where you could touch nobody and where nobody would dare touch you. This had been her reality for 12 years. She had no hope for marriage or a family because no man could touch her. She had lived for 12 years a miserable, lonely life. And when she looked down the tunnel of time in the future, she saw absolutely no hope for a good life in the future. Her life was hopeless. At some point, she hears about Jesus, though, and she hears about him healing people, and she thinks, what have I got to lose? I've, I've stood in the way and let somebody scare me. I've drank onion juice and wine and everything else. Why not go see him? Here's a man who's healing people and at no charge, which is good when you have no money. So she throws caution to the wind and she travels to Capernaum and she has a plan. We're told that her plan is to come up behind him, which is exactly what she does, and she touches the fringe of his garment. Now, the, the, this crowd is gonna provide her with the kind of cover that she needs. So I sort of imagine this woman with something over her head, sort of veiling her appearance so that nobody can identify her. But this mob is perfect because everybody is sort of mobbing Jesus and looking toward Jesus. And so she sort of can fight her way through the crowd from behind sort of unnoticed. She's taking a remarkable risk because if anybody identifies her moving her way through the crowd, what do you think is gonna happen? There's gonna be outrage, why? Because there's no way for her to get from the outside to Jesus other than doing what? Touching a lot of people. But to her, the risk is worth it because he's her only hope. So her goal seems to be this, to sneak in from behind, to touch the edge of his outer garment, to be healed, and to sort of sneak out through the crowd and go back home healed. That seems to be her plan. So she fights her way through the crowd and she gets nearby and she finally sees the opportunity. <clears throat> A tassel from the fringe of his garment is within reach and she lunges and grabs hold of it, hoping not to be noticed. And Luke tells us miraculously, after 12 years of desperate attempts, this woman is healed. She's healed. She's healed immediately, and she knows it. She's healed completely, we're told. She knew what this disease felt like in her body, and she knew the moment it was gone. The bleeding stopped after 12 years. Her heart must have leapt out of her chest. It must have, right? Her nightmare was over. Her life restored. And so no doubt she immediately turns and tries to inconspicuously sneak her way out of the crowd. But on this day, that was absolutely not gonna be possible. Why was it not possible? Because Jesus doesn't allow it. Did you catch that? <clears throat> he doesn't allow it. She wasn't the only one who felt this healing take place. Jesus did too. So he literally stops in his tracks on his movement toward Jairus' house, and he looks around and he asks the question out loud, who was it that touched me? Who touched me? <clears throat> Can you imagine the crowd around him? Everybody looking at each other? Luke says they're all denying it. It wasn't me, Jesus, he touched you. It wasn't, I didn't touch you, he touched you. No, I didn't touch you, she touched you. And Peter, you just gotta love Peter, don't you? 
he's never at a loss for something ridiculous to say. And I appreciate that about him, right? Because I've said some ridiculous things in my time. Peter's never at a loss for something impulsive and ridiculous to say. He hears Jesus say, who touched me? And he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? Who touched you? Like, everyone's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? Like the crowd, it's, it's pressing in on you. You're surrounded by a mob. Everybody's touching you. That's a ridiculous question. A better question might be, who isn't touching you? Everybody's touching you. In the South, we might say to Peter, bless his heart, right? Bless his heart. Bless his little heart. He just said something stupid to Jesus. <clears throat> it won't be the last time he does that either. Jesus replies to him and says, somebody touched me. For I perceive power has gone out for me. Peter, everybody might be touching me, but only one person touched me like this. And her touch was different. It was a, a touch of a, of a humble and desperate faith that was believing upon me for healing. And in response, she was healed by my power. I felt it. Now, at this point, we need to stop and ask, what in the world is Jesus doing? Why doesn't he let this woman just go off about her merry way healed? That's all she was looking for. Why doesn't he let her just sort of drift off into the, into the background, back into anonymity? Why does he stop and press the point? Why does he make a, a public issue of this? Why does he choose to expose her publicly? I'm certain it was the last thing she wanted. The reason is because the thing that she wanted most was not the thing that she needed the most. And out of tremendous love and grace and kindness, the Savior of the world is going to not only give her what she wanted the most, but he's going to grant her what she needed the most. She has a worse problem than a 12-year bleed. She has a soul that's sick from sin and is condemned to hell. And the Savior intends to address that as well. And so Jesus presses this point. Who is it that touched me? He's not gonna let it go. And this woman knows that she's the one and she knows that she's caught. And now all of a sudden, her sheer joy is turned into abject terror because she has to come forward and identify herself. And as we see in uh, what Luke tells us is that, that, that she falls before him trembling and declares in the presence of all the people why she touched him and how she'd been healed. This woman now has to expose to the entire crowd who she is and what she's done. And she's terrified enough that she's literally shaking. You ever been scared enough that you shake? She is. She doesn't know how this is gonna turn out. She's just told the crowd and everybody that she's touched who she is. And they're all thinking, oh dear Lord, now I'm unclean until the evening. And probably not a one of them would think for a moment, I'm unclean until the evening. She's been unclean for 12 years. Or even have compassion for that. But Jesus isn't like the crowd. There's a risk that this crowd could rise up in anger and harm her. And so she's terrified. And at first, this seems like a really unkind thing for Jesus to do. However, it turns out to be a remarkable act of grace. Jesus looks at her and says to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. There's at least two things that Jesus is doing here in this act. The first is that he's restoring her socially. He's restoring her socially. He says very clearly, your faith has made you well. The word translated in the ESV, made you well, it comes from the Greek word sozo, which means to save. Your, your faith has saved you, it's rescued you. This woman, had, this, this woman had come to Jesus in humble faith. She had abandoned every other source of help. She had recognized him as her only hope, and she had grabbed hold of his clothing, trusting in his power to heal her. And in response to that kind of faith, Jesus heals her. He heals her. Physically, socially, eternally. 
so he could legitimately say to her, go in peace. Not only was her body made whole, but her sin had been dealt with. Her war of rebellion against God, where she was God's enemy, has now been set to rest, and she can go literally in peace. She can go away knowing she's got peace with God. And it's not just about her knowing that. It's about everybody else knowing that too. It was Jesus making a public declaration to this crowd. This woman is no longer what? She's no longer unclean. She's to be received back into society. Touch her. Hug her. Love her. And if there's any question about how deep her saving, the saving act went, Jesus addresses her as daughter. He doesn't call her by the general term for woman, he calls her daughter. Now you can read through the gospels and I, uh, I suspect you're not gonna find any other person that he refers to personally this way. But he's recognizing that there's a new reality in this woman's life. She has been literally adopted into his family. She's no longer a stranger. She's no longer an enemy. She's no longer an outsider. He looks at her and he says to her affectionately, daughter, daughter, you belong to me now. This woman who has been rejected by everybody for 12 years, including her own family, here's the savior of the world, call her daughter. Daughter, you're mine. You belong to me. You're no longer in the shadows. You belong at my table, in my home, in my family. You're mine. You're my daughter. Through the salvation that Jesus brought to this woman's soul, she's now part of his family. One minute she's a, an object of scorn, rejected by everybody, a nobody in her culture. And the next minute, she's a child of the king. A daughter of God incarnate. She came to Jesus in shame, just hoping to be healed from a sickness, but she found in him so much more. She found more love, she found more kindness, she found more grace, she found a remarkable savior who restored her life in every single way. Isn't that remarkable? He didn't have to do any of that, but he does because he loves people. Well, in case you've forgotten, while this is all playing out right in front of the crowd, you have Jairus there in the crowd and the clock is ticking like it's ticking for you right now. The clock was ticking for Jairus. Every minute that Jesus spends dealing with this woman is the minute delay of him getting to his house to his daughter. And that delay becomes tragic immediately because we're told in verse 49, while he was still speaking, that is to the woman, someone from the ruler's house come, came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus on hearing this answered him, don't fear, only believe and she'll be well. While Jesus is still speaking, Jairus' worst nightmare comes to bear. Somebody comes racing from his home and says, it's too late. It's too late, she's dead. Don't bother Jesus anymore. She's gone. You tried your best, Jairus, but you're too late. Luke doesn't give us the details, but I can imagine this man crumbles to the ground, right? What would any father do? What would any father do? But she's dead. But Jesus, again, in tremendous love and compassion, says to this man, Jairus, don't fear. Only believe. Jairus, don't fear. She'll be well. Jairus, I'm in control of everything. Hang on, buddy. Hang on, just believe, exercise some faith in me. I didn't, I didn't move in this direction just to be late to the party. I, 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 didn't, I didn't give you hope just to yank the rug out from underneath you. 
you hold on, brother. It's going to be all right. I'll finish what I started. You just have to believe. Jairus does believe. And they continue on to, to Jairus' house. And Luke tells us what happens. When they came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James and the, the father and the mother of the child, Jairus and his wife. And all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, do not weep, for she's not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, child, arise. And her spirit returned, and she got up at once, and he directed that some, something should be given to her to eat. The parents were amazed, but he charged them, not, or he charged them to tell no one what had happened. Jesus continues on his way with Jairus and they get to the house of this dead little girl. They get to the doorway and Jesus tells everybody to stay behind except for whom? Peter, James, and John. Why do you think he tells everybody to stay behind except for Peter, James, and John? Well, probably because the house doesn't hold the whole crowd, I'm sure. But Jesus is doing some leadership training. Write down in your notes if you are taking notes, Acts 9, 36 through 40. Acts 9, 36 through 40, or just log it in your memory bank and go read it later. You're gonna find that later, after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter's gonna be going about doing ministry, and there's gonna be a time in Peter's life when he comes upon a scene where there's a dead little girl. How is Peter gonna know what to do? He's gonna know what to do because on this day, in Luke chapter eight, Jesus invites him in, and he shows him precisely what to do. And so Peter, in Acts chapter 9, does exactly what Jesus did in Luke chapter 8. And guess what happens? The same thing. Jesus is training Peter while he's doing other things. But inside this house is devastation. You've got a mourning family and you've got professional mourners. Now, we don't do that in our culture. We don't hire people to come scream and wail and cry at funerals who are not part of the family. That seems odd and weird to us, right? Like you would, you would think it was bizarre if you went to a funeral and there were a bunch of strangers there just screaming and yelling and crying and wailing and ripping their clothes and playing music, right? That was normal in the first century. The more important you were, the more of that went on. And into the midst of that, Jesus walks and says to everybody, settle down, cut it out. She's not dead, she's what? She's sleeping. She's taking a nap. And the mourners, who are professional mourners, they shut off the morning like that, and they do what? They laugh at him. They laugh at him. You gotta be kidding, man, who are you? We've seen dead people before, this is our job, right? She's dead. Well, Jesus redefines what death means, doesn't he? You see, Jesus came to save people from death. He came to save people from sin and from death. He came to die, to be buried, and to rise from the dead. He came to take the, the sting out of death and to render it powerless over people so he has no fear whatsoever of death. To him, this little girl was not dead. Death is permanent. So Jesus says, She's taken a nap. Her body physically had stopped working, but spiritually death was not complete. And like a father, like a loving father, he walks up to this dead girl and he takes her hand, which incidentally is another act that would have made him unclean. And he could have healed her without it, but he touches her and he says to her, little girl, awake. Just like any parent would go into their child's room in the morning and say, sweetheart, wake up. It's time to get up. And immediately her spirit returns to her body. Her eyes snap open. And like the woman, she's healed completely and she's healed immediately. There's no rehab needed. There's no further treatment needed. She's healthy enough to enjoy a meal. Jesus orders up some food. A dead girl comes to life. And Jesus says to this family, do me a favor, don't share this with people. Well, everybody's gonna know what took place in this home. 
But Jesus isn't interested in drawing a bigger crowd because of his miracles. But this sweet family is reunited. A woman, 12 years bleeding, a 12-year-old little girl dead, both completely, fully restored by a loving, gracious Savior who meets people in the midst of their desperation and heals them. Heals them. What do we take away from all this? Let me just give you three quick things. I think they're obvious. The first is this. The good news of the gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you're a woman or a man. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. It doesn't matter if you're respected or you're rejected. It doesn't matter if you're important or if you're unimportant. It doesn't matter if you're popular or you're shunned. It doesn't matter if you're religious or you're unclean. None of those human distinctions matter when it comes to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel is for everybody. It doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what position you find yourself in this particular place in your life. None of that matters. No distinction cuts you off from the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody can come to him and find salvation by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter who you are. It matters who he is and what he can do. And if you come to him with humble faith, recognizing that he is your only hope and abandoning all other help but trusting in him, the Bible says you'll be saved. You will be saved. He will not turn you away. If you're here this morning, And for whatever reason, you haven't trusted Christ. You've never come to him like Jairus or like this woman, recognizing that your situation, although it isn't physical and it isn't your child dying, that you have a problem with sin that has condemned your soul to eternal hell. And there is no, there's nothing your money, there is nothing your power, there is nothing your prestige, there is nothing about you that can, you can leverage, that can do anything to save you from that. That Jesus Christ is your only hope. If you haven't come to realize that and come to him on those terms like these two did, you need to today. And if you will, you'll find in him a loving and merciful and gracious Savior who will meet you in that place and will save you. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters who he is. Secondly, I won't belabor this, but for believers, death is, it should be no more frightening than a nap. It really shouldn't. If you're a Christian and you're here this morning, death should not terrify you. It should frighten you no more than an afternoon nap. Because the Bible says for believers, to be absent from this body is to be instantly where? To be present with the Lord. By his death and resurrection, Jesus has has destroyed death. And by faith in him, you have the promise that you will rise like he has risen And death is nothing to be feared. It's simply the doorway into his presence. We go to sleep here and you wake up there. One of our dear saints from our church had that very experience this week. Miss Madeline Johnson, who had been suffering in some ways from a, a body that had been declining for a very long time. And earlier this week she went to sleep She didn't wake up here, but she woke up there. And she's all the better for it. Finally, and this has been the point of Luke all throughout the gospel so far, Jesus is God in human flesh, and salvation is found in no one else. Nobody can do what Christ can do. There's only one. There's only one Jesus. There's only one way. There's only one way to be saved. Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Coming to him in humble faith. Renouncing every other means for salvation. 
throwing the whole weight of your hope on him and him alone. That's what Jairus did. That's what this woman did, abandoning every other hope for healing. They clung to Christ and looked to him and him alone, trusting him to do what nobody else could do. And they were saved. And you can be too. Why won't you be? Why won't you be? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you're everything to us. We try to the best of our imagination to picture the realities of these experiences, but our imagination only takes us so far. We can't catch the full breadth of your glory and your majesty that must have been on vivid display on this particular day. But what we can know is your love and your mercy and your grace that you showed to people who, like us, were completely undeserving, who had done nothing to earn it, but whose only movement toward you was a movement of humble faith that bowed before you, recognizing their own weakness, abandoning every other hope, and trusting you to do for them what nobody and nothing else could ever do. And in that moment, you met them and you healed them, and you restored them in every way. And you can do the same for any man, for any woman who'll come to you on those terms. You confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would work that miracle in the heart of some man, some woman, some young person that's in this room today who needs that more than anything. It may not be what they've come here wanting this morning, but it's what they've come here needing. And you have a track record of giving people what they need beyond what they want. So would you, Lord Jesus, work that miracle here today for somebody? And for the rest of us, Lord, may you draw our hearts toward you in wonder and amazement at your love and your mercy and your compassion and your grace. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen.